following sermon, entitled Our Priest King at God's Right Hand, was preached on the evening of February 19th, 2023, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this evening to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, we will read the chapter, and we do so in connection with the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 19. Psalm 110, this is the inspired and therefore infallible Word of our God. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power and the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. As far as we read God's Word, it's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 19. Lord's Day 19, why is it added and sitteth at the right hand of God? Because Christ is ascended into heaven for this end that He might appear as head of His church by whom the Father governs all things. What profit is this glory of Christ, our head, unto us? First, that by His Holy Spirit He pours out heavenly graces upon us, His members, And then by His power He defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to thee that Christ shall come again to judge the quick and the dead? That in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head I look for the very same person who before offered Himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall translate me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. Where is Jesus now? As a parent, that is a question I ask regularly to my two daughters who are old enough to give an answer. Because they've been taught that Jesus died for them on the cross. But though He died, He did not stay in the grave. But He arose again on the third day so that Jesus is alive. And the question then becomes, well, where is Jesus right now? And by asking that question again and again to my daughters, they have learned that the right answer is Jesus is in heaven. And that is a valid answer to that question. Because as we saw last week Sunday when we considered Lord's Day 18, 40 days after Christ's resurrection, Jesus ascended up into heaven. That is, According to His human nature, He departed from this earth and entered into heaven. So that of a truth, we can answer the question, where is Jesus now? By saying He's in heaven. But while that answer will suffice for a two-year-old and a five-year-old, for the rest of us, we must know that It's not quite as specific as it should be. Because the truth is that He's not just up there in heaven, but that He occupies 
a very unique and a very specific place in heaven. Namely, Jesus is at the right hand of our God. That's where He is at right now. And that's the truth that we are taught in this Lord's Day. We have been making our way through the Catechism's explanation of the Apostles' Creed. It's been going line by line through that summary of all that we believe as Christians. And in previous weeks, we've considered the fact that Jesus arose again on the third day, and then most recently, the truth that He ascended up into heaven. And by looking at His resurrection and His ascension, we considered the first two steps of Christ's exaltation. And now, continuing on in the Catechism's explanation of the Apostles' Creed, we come to those next two lines that He sits at God's right hand, and from thence He shall come to judge the quick, that is the living, and the dead. And in considering these two things, we consider then the the next two steps, the next two aspects of Christ's exaltation, And we're taught more specifically how to answer that question. Where is Jesus right now? In heaven, yes. But more specifically, He's at God's right hand. And He will remain there until He comes again in all of His glory to judge the whole earth. And in light of Psalm 110, we see that He is sitting there specifically as our mediator, as our priest, and as our King. And thus, the theme for this evening's sermon is our priest-king at God's right hand. First, we'll look at His position of rule. Second, we'll look at His return as a judge. And then third, His glory in both. Our priest-king at God's right hand. First, His position of rule. Second, His return as judge. And third, His glory in both. In the Apostles' Creed, we confess that Jesus Christ is sitting at God's right hand. And we do that on the basis of Scripture. That's the clear teaching, for example, of the New Testament Scriptures. For example, in his Pentecost sermon, Peter says in Acts 2, verse 33, about Jesus Christ, therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, He hath shed forth this. Likewise, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3, verse 1 says of Jesus Christ, rather, He calls us to seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Same expression. And then the writer of the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, verse 12, but this man, referring to Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And understand, these are but a few passages that use this exact same language and apply it to Jesus Christ. Christ is sitting at God's right hand. And what's noteworthy in light of the Scripture passage that we read tonight is that this was fulfillment of prophecy. Namely, the prophecy of Psalm 110, specifically verse 1, where we read, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That Psalm 110 is indeed prophetic of Jesus Christ. It's clear from the New Testament which takes Psalm 110 verse 1 and lifts it and applies it directly to Christ. And in fact, Christ Himself, in Matthew 22, appeals back to Psalm 110 as a proof of His deity so that we have no doubt that Psalm 110 is a prophecy of the Messiah. And it's in that light that we then understand what's being said here. Because in Psalm 110, we read this, the Lord said unto my Lord. Well, who is this Lord speaking unto a Lord? Well, The person who's speaking here is David. So he's referring to one who is my, David's Lord. But yet there's a Lord, Jehovah, all cap, Lord in all capital letters, speaking unto one who is David's Lord. 
And it's in light of the New Testament clarity that we understand we have God the Father speaking to God the Son. One who is David's Lord and who is Lord with regards to His divine nature and person. This is a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. And the message of the Lord unto David's Lord is, sit thou at My right hand. So that already in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that this would happen for Jesus Christ. After He ascended up into heaven, He would sit down at God's right hand. But now what exactly does that mean? That Jesus is sitting at God's right hand. And in explaining that truth, it's worth starting with the fact that His sitting down at God's right hand, that is His session, the word session means sitting down, is distinct from His ascension. You see, there are some who say they're one and the same thing and that we ought not to try to find a different meaning in each. But the reality is that these are two distinct aspects of Christ's exaltation. And that's evident from the fact that not all who ascend then sit down at God's right hand. You can have the one without the other. Because the angels ascend, but yet we're told in Hebrews 1, verse 13, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Angels ascend, but they do not sit at God's right hand. We will ascend up into heaven, but we will not be given this same position. And therefore, Christ's ascension is distinct from His sitting down at God's right hand. His ascension was His departure from this earth and His entrance into the place called heaven according to His human nature. In contrast, His sitting down at God's right hand, His session was Him being given a position of power, honor, and authority from which He now rules over all on behalf of God Himself. That's the idea of His sitting down at God's right hand. And to help us to understand that, it's helpful to go back to the two Old Testament examples of men who were given such a position of a king or ruler's right-hand man. You have Joseph, the right hand of Pharaoh, and later on you have Daniel at the right hand of King Nebuchadnezzar. And we'll look at just the one, Joseph. Joseph, for him to be given that position, was for him to be given a position of honor and power and authority. And that comes out when we go back to Genesis 41, for example. In Genesis 41, verses 41 through 43, we read this And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him to ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried before him, Bow the knee. And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was elevated to a position of honor, a position of power, authority. He was given emblems that, were, that signified his power. Everyone was called to bow the knee when Joseph came riding by in his chariot. So that's a part of, being, of sitting at a ruler's right hand. But it's, it's not just that you're given the position, but along with that comes the expectation that you are then going to carry out the rule of the one who has given you that position. And that's exactly what Joseph does in this history. For example, in verse 40, we read Pharaoh saying this, Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. Same thing in verse 44. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without thee shall no man lift up his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Joseph sat down at the right hand of Pharaoh. And in this, he's a picture of Jesus Christ. 
who sits at the right hand, not of Pharaoh, not of any other earthly ruler, but at the right hand of God Himself. That is, He's been given a position of power, of authority, of honor. So that all must bow the knee to this great ruler. And what is more, at, in that position, God Himself now exercises His rule through Jesus Christ. It's Christ who's carrying out the rule of God the Father on His behalf. And Christ was given that position immediately after He ascended up into heaven. So that though from a chronological point of view, you cannot really separate His ascension from His session at God's right hand, yet they are two distinct aspects in Christ's overall exaltation. And now it's from this position that Jesus Christ is carrying out His work as our mediator, as the Christ, the One who is our prophet, priest, and king. It's from this position that He rules over all as King. And that's a part of Psalm 110. For example, in Psalm 110, verse 2, we read this, "...the Lord shall send the rod of thy strength, the Messiah's strength, out of Zion." It speaks of the Messiah's rod. You could translate that as scepter. That, that staff that a king wielded as a, an emblem of his rule of His sovereignty over a people. And what is more, the rest of the verse says, rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. This is teaching us that Christ is seated at God's right hand as King. That His session at God's right hand was His coronation from a certain point of view as the ruler over the whole earth. Thus, it's especially his, the kingly aspect of His office that comes out when we consider this sitting down at God's right hand. But though the kingly office stands on the foreground, it's not as though Jesus Christ lays aside the other aspects of His office because He's still priest. And that too is a part of Psalm 110. Verse 4, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now those last few words after the order of Melchizedek indicates that this priesthood is an eternal priesthood. And what is more, that it's a priesthood that's combined with the office of king. But the point we are making right now is that for Christ to sit down at God's right hand does not mean He stops being a priest. He continues that work and He continues that especially by making intercession on our behalf from that position. That's Romans 8, verse 34, which connects Him sitting at God's right hand to His making intercession on our behalf. And what is more, He remains our prophet. That aspect of His office is, does not come out in Psalm 110, but for example, in Ephesians chapter 4, which teaches us about the ascension of Jesus Christ and the work that He performs there from that position in heaven, then goes on to speak of Him giving office bearers to the church. And using the office bearers, especially the preaching of the Gospel for the edification of the church so that it's through the, the official administration of the Word that Christ as our prophet is functioning and proclaiming His Word in and through those men. And so from this position, Christ is our mediator, our prophet, priest, and king. And He was given the right to sit at such an exalted position exactly because He first humbled Himself. Exactly because He first obeyed all that the Father commanded Him so that this position that's given to Christ is His due reward. For He came to do not His own will, but the will of the Father who sent Him. Which included obeying the Ten Commandments, the, the law on our behalf, but understand that the will of the Father was more than just obedience to the Ten Commandments, but there was unique aspects of the will of the Father for Christ as mediator, so that a part of that was you must die on the cross. You must drink the cup of God's wrath against our sin, and Christ obeyed. 
He was obedient even unto the death of the cross. And now, having first humbled Himself, He is duly exalted. And this position is a part of that. So that it's the due reward for His saving work so that there's a connection even between this session, the sitting at God's right hand, and the cross of Jesus Christ and His lifelong obedience. So that briefly is the position of our Savior. But now, having considered the position and the meaning and the significance of it, we want to look more closely at the rule that He carries out from that position. And we do so in light of Psalm 110, which gives us instruction concerning His rule. And we can look at Psalm 110 using the distinction that's a part of Reformed theology that as the ascended Lord, Christ rules over both the wicked and over the church. He rules over the wicked by His power and He rules over His church by His grace. And we see both aspects of His rule here in Psalm 110. First, in Psalm 110, we see His rule over the wicked by His power. That's verse 2 that we read already. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thy enemies. So that the idea is Christ sets up His throne in the midst of His enemies. They're all around Him, but they are unable to conquer Him. And this is in fact what's happening right now. He, he allows the enemies to continue to exist for now, but He's sovereign over them. He's in complete control over them. It's taught in Psalm 110, but it also comes out in that psalm we sang before the sermon, Psalm 2, which likewise gives expression of this truth that Christ, as the one who is sitting at God's right hand, rules over the wicked by his power. So that in, for in Psalm 2, we read of the wicked and their desire to overthrow the Messiah. Psalm 2, verses 1 and following, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, that is against Christ, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. The wicked want to overthrow the rule of the Messiah. They want out from under His rule. But they will never be successful. Because Psalm 2 verse 4 continues, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall He speak unto them in His wrath and vex them in His sore displeasure. Christ rules over the wicked by His power. And a part of that rule, which is really a transition into that rule over His church by His grace, is that He is at work to conquer those who stand opposed to Him. And that really is the idea of Psalm 110, verse 2. To go back to the psalm that we read at the beginning in the verse that we've been talking about, we read, the Lord, that is Jehovah, and the fathers, especially in view, shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. So the rod of the Messiah's strength going out of Zion. And now the key word there is send. The idea is spread forth. So that this verse is communicating that the Messiah's reign will be advanced. There's a conquering that's taking place. And that conquering is when, by His Word and Spirit, he calls His elect people out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That is, He translates those who were a part of the kingdom of darkness and brings them into His own kingdom of light. It's a part of His work as the one sitting at God's right hand. He, he robs the, the kingdom of Satan by taking those who otherwise belonged to Satan, who were in bondage to Satan, 
and sets them free. He liberates them. He redeems them and brings them into His own kingdom. There's a a spreading. There's an advancement of the kingdom of Christ. And as I said, that transitions us from His rule over the wicked by His power and into the rule of His church by His grace. Because it's grace that is the explanation for why He takes certain ones out of that kingdom of darkness and brings them into His own kingdom. It's grace that explains that when He does that, He he establishes His own rule of grace in our hearts. We were under the power, the dominion of sin, and he, He overthrows the reign of sin within us and He establishes His own rule. He gives us His own life. That new man. That new principle of life. It's a part of the reign of His power over the church by His grace. And the result of that is astounding. In light of what we read in Psalm 110, verse 3, Thy people shall be willing in the day of Thy power in the beauties of holiness, and then what follows. What this is teaching us is that when Christ brings us into His kingdom, when He establishes His own rule in our hearts, He makes us willing. That is, ready and willing to serve Him. And more specifically, the point is, He makes us willing to give ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving unto Him. Because that word willing there really refers to a free will, a voluntary offering. So that this harkens forward to what we read in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and how we are to present ourselves as sacrifices of thanksgiving unto our God. And we do that by living a, a life of holiness unto Him. A life of devotion consecration. For verse 3 continues, Thy people shall be willing in the day of Thy power in beauties of holiness. And we could translate that to say in robes of holiness. In regalia of holiness. So that the idea is that God's people, Christ's people then bring themselves forward as an offering, as a sacrifice of thanksgiving clothed in holiness as those who live a holy life. Is that your life? Is it mine? That we present ourselves as sacrifices of thanksgiving willingly unto our Savior out of thankfulness for His saving work? By His grace, it will be. That's the comforting truth of verse 3. Thy people shall be willing in the day of Thy power because Christ Himself will work that in us. Not by treating us as robots or puppets, stocks and blocks. He still deals with us as rational moral creatures, but by the strength of His Spirit, by the strength of His rule of grace in our hearts and lives, He will work this into us. So that though it's not automatic, it just happens without us ever even thinking or willing, nevertheless, it is inevitable by the power of His grace. Because He's seated at God's right hand. He occupies a position of power and authority. And from that position, He is now carrying out the rule of God the Father on His behalf. And that includes working this into us so that we become willing servants of the Most High God. Now congregation, does not all of this underscore the the blessedness of this truth? That Jesus Christ is sitting at God's right hand. You see, it's for good reason that the Heidelberg Catechism devotes an entire question and answer within this Lord's Day to the prophet of Christ's ascension. 
or rather of his session at God's right hand. Question answer 50 asks, why is it added and sitteth at the right hand of God? And there it gives the explanation that we've largely covered. But then question 51 follows that up and says, what profit is this glory of Christ our head unto us? Because it is indeed profitable. That's what comes out from Psalm chapter 110. And the catechism gives a helpful explanation and elaborates on that truth when it explains that first, the prophet is this, that by His Holy Spirit, He pours out heavenly graces upon His members. Part of the prophet is that from His throne in heaven, from that position at God's right hand, Christ is now pouring out heavenly graces. All of the blessings of salvation. He gives us that new life. He gives us the gift of faith. He's the one who works in us by His grace to make us willing so that we present ourselves as sacrifice. That's His work. And the key then is that as a congregation, as His people, we need to see all these heavenly graces as coming directly from His throne. That we have these things because He occupies that position. Joseph's brothers understood that. When they came to Egypt needing bread, and when they found out later on that it was Joseph, their brother, who was able to open up the storehouses of Egypt to provide for them, they understood, well, it's because God put the right man in the right position that these storehouses are now opened up to us. And we have bread. We have our needs provided for us. And we must understand the same thing. It's because God Himself put the right man in the right position. He put Christ our Savior at His right hand. He made Him ruler over everything so that Christ can now open up the storehouses of heaven and pour upon His church all of the riches of His grace, all of the blessings that He has earned for us by His perfect obedience and by His death on the cross. It's profitable for us. It's a great advantage for us that Christ is seated, is seated at God's right hand. And that's just the first half of question and answer 51. Because the answer goes on to say, second, and then, and the idea is secondly, that by His power, He defends and preserves us against all enemies. And you see, this goes back to His rule over the wicked world by His power. A part of that rule is that He is able to control them. He's able to govern them. And thus defend and preserve us so that the wicked world can not so much as move apart from the will of our Savior. And in that way, He is preserving His church. And you believe that, right? That Christ is in fact at this very moment defending and preserving His church. We might be tempted to think otherwise. Because when we look at the world around us, we see wickedness abounds. Lawlessness increases. And it seems that the cogs of the engine of persecution are ramping up. So that from an, our point of view as believers, who are part of the church militant, the church still on this earth, we could readily see how the great tribulation would be just around the corner. And what is more, it seems that the wicked prosper. That though they go on in their wickedness, yet all seems to be well for them, and we can start to wonder, well, is, is Christ, is He really there? Is He really governing over all things? Because when I look around me, things look awful. But 
But the key is we must not look at the circumstances. But we must look up and by faith see Him seated, seated at the right hand of God. He is ruling over all. So that though the wicked do prosper, though they increase their wickedness, the reality is that Christ will not allow them to go one step further than what He has determined. And when the wicked do indeed do damage, harm to the church, that too is under His control. And He's using it for the good of the church. And in all of it, He is so ruling and governing all things that really He is preparing for the day He will return. Right now, Jesus is seated seated at the right hand of God the Father, but He will come again. He will return as judge. That too is a part of the confession that we make each Sunday evening as a congregation that he shall from thence, that is from God's right hand, he shall come to judge the quick, that is the living and the dead. And that's really a part of the emphasis of Psalm chapter 2. If we go back to the psalm, it points ahead not just to the fact that Christ would be seated at God's right hand, but also that He would one day punish the wicked. That comes out, for example, in verse 1. And the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. There is coming a day that the Lord Jehovah will make Christ's enemies His footstool. And that phrase, that expression, is a reference to complete subjection of an enemy and really the humiliation of an enemy. We say that in light we say that for example in light of a passage such as Joshua chapter 10 where we see Joshua doing this very thing. In Joshua chapter 10, they have just defeated five different kings who had allied together to come against the nation of Israel to stop them, but God gave them the victory and in verse 24 we read this. And it came to pass when they brought out those kings unto Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. Those kings had been badly defeated. And now they were made consciously, acutely, and painfully aware of that thing. They were completely subjected. They were humiliated. As men from Israel came and put their feet right on top of their heads. Before Joshua then slew those five kings. Completely destroying them. And now Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That is, there's coming a day when Christ Himself will do that very thing to His enemies. To His enemies that rose up and condemned Him and crucified Him. To His enemies that denied His existence or at least denied His deity to His enemies that tried to set up a a co-Savior alongside of Jesus Christ in their hearts, they will be completely and utterly subjected. It's a part of the prophecy of Psalm 110. It also comes out in the the latter verses, verses 5 and 6. The Lord, referring to Christ, at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of His wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads of many countries. And we see His his rule over all the wicked here and His his punishment of the wicked. And His power comes out in that. It's not just 
the lowly that he's subjecting, but it speaks of kings. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings. And not just individuals, but entire peoples, entire nations. Because the end of verse 6, he shall wound the heads of many countries. And all of this will take place, according to verse 5, in the day of his wrath. So Psalm 110 clearly prophesies of a day in which Christ will come in judgment against the wicked. So when will that happen? Well, at the end of all things, Christ will come again. It's a part of our confession. It's not just that He's going to judge at the end, but He will come again as the judge. And that's a part of our confession on the basis of Scripture. Last week we brought in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, and we heard the angel say to the disciples, this same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen Him go into heaven. And that coming will be His second coming, which will be in sharp contrast to His first coming. In His first coming, He came in lowliness, in humility, with hardly anyone recognizing it. And He came to assume, to take to Himself for the first time, our human nature. That's His first coming. And His second coming will be quite different. Because He will come not to take to Himself a human nature, but He will come in His glorified human nature. And more to the point, He's going to come in all of His glory, in all of His power, in all of His greatness, riding on the clouds of heaven. And when He comes, He will come to judge both the quick, that is the living, and the dead. That means He will first of all raise the dead. That's John 5, verse 28. For the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear His voice and shall come forth. That is, they shall come forth from the grave. So step one when Christ comes again is raise the dead. And as for those who are alive still at that day, they will be changed and made fit for their everlasting destination. And then having done that, Christ will then summon, He will gather together every person who ever lived to stand before His judgment seat, before His throne. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in His body according to that He hath done, whether it be good or bad. So all men will stand before that throne and as they stand there, there will be a disclosure, a revealing of everything we ever did. Every action, word, thought, desire, it will all be laid bare. Even as we're taught in Revelation 20, verse 12, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. So the books being a reference to all the things we ever did, all of our thoughts, words, deeds, and actions. And then alongside of that, the book of life that we talked about this morning, that book in which all of God's elect people are named. And we read the rest of verse 12. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So Christ Himself stands there as judge, all men before Him, and as judge, He renders a verdict. Either guilty or righteous. Condemned or justified. And in harmony with that verdict, Christ will then separate His elect sheep from all of the wicked. Even as we're taught in Matthew 25, verses 31 and 32, when the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory and before Him shall be gathered all nations and He shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And He shall set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. And then to each He will have a different word. 
to His elect sheep on the right, He will say as we read in verse 34, Come ye blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And to the wicked, He will say Matthew 25, verse 41, Depart from Me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. Prepare, prepared for the devil and his angels. And thus Christ will inaugurate the everlasting state. His elect people for whom He died will be brought with Him into the new heavens and the new earth. And the wicked will be cast into everlasting destruction. And it's that especially that is, will be the fulfillment of Psalm 110. When Psalm 110 says what it does in verses 5 and following, the Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of His wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. That is what is coming at the end. Now, how do you feel about that coming? Because this is going to happen. God has decreed it. He has promised that it's going to happen. And therefore, it is certain. And that means it is certain that every single person sitting in this sanctuary tonight will appear before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. How do you feel about that? Do you look forward to it? Or is the thought of it altogether terrifying? Understand that if we have to face that day in and of ourselves, there's really nothing more dreadful than the thought of that day. Because every one of us in this room is a sinner. God calls us to present ourselves as sacrifices of thanksgiving. As free will offerings, giving our whole lives unto Him. And the reality is that every one of us lives for ourselves. So it's all about me. We're called to, to come in robes of holiness. With that characterizing our life, devotion, consecration unto our God. But the reality is that we come tainted, polluted, covered in sin. And on account of that sin, we therefore deserve judgment. That is, we deserve for Christ on that day to throw us to the ground, face down into the ground, and to have Him put His foot upon our head to show us that we are completely and utterly subjected to humiliate us for our proud rebellion against Him. We deserve to have Him strike us through and to litter our dead corpses across the earth. That's what we deserve on account of our sins. And thus, if we had to stand there in and of ourselves, this would be the most dreadful thing imaginable. But beloved, the good news of the Gospel is that as those who believe in Jesus Christ, we can actually look forward to that day. And that's the beautiful teaching of question and answer 52 of this Lord's Day. Question 52 asks, what comfort is it to thee that Christ shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Notice the question doesn't even, the Heidelberg Catechism does not even ask the question, what do you mean by the, the fact that Christ is going to come to judge the quick and the dead? It gets right to the comfort. That's its focus. What comfort do you have in this? And the answer is that in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, 
I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation and shall translate me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. He says with uplifted head we can look forward to this day. And the reason is because we look for the very same person who before offered Himself for my sake to the tribunal of God. That is, the One who's coming as judge is my Savior. The One who's coming as judge is my High Priest. The One who came into this world to make an offering, to make the sacrifice as the payment for our sins, the One who came to live a life of perfect obedience that can be imputed to our account so that I need not fear that day. But I can look forward to it because I know on the basis of His saving work, He will pronounce not guilty because He satisfied God's justice for my sins. And what is more, He'll say not only not guilty, but from a positive point of view, righteous Righteous on the basis of Christ's perfect obedience and His fulfilling of the law of God. That's something to look forward to. And we look forward to this day because of what's going to happen then. All of our enemies will be thrown down. The catechism continues. Who shall cast all His and My enemies, one group, into everlasting condemnation. He will fulfill the word of prophecy in Psalm chapter 2 so that all those enemies who plagued me, who tried to lead me astray, they will all be destroyed. And I will be able to lay down my armor. The fight will be over. And what is more, we will be brought into everlasting life with Him. That's the end of Answer 52, but He shall translate me with all His chosen ones to Himself into heavenly joys and glory. We get to look forward to life with God for all eternity. That's our view of the coming of Jesus Christ as judge as believers. But now understand, only the believing child of God may have that perspective. So that if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, if you intend to stand before that great judge in and of yourself, be warned that when that day comes, you will wish the very rocks would fall down upon you. And therefore, as a servant of Jesus Christ, I bid you, flee from the wrath to come and seek refuge in Jesus Christ. Believe in Him. Trust Him. Knowing that whosoever believeth shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And for those who do believe, will you have exactly that to look forward to? Everlasting life. Life with God. Life without sin. And a life basking in the glory of Jesus Christ Himself. Because while you... Because you see, while this is something we look forward to, and Christ's return is an aspect of His saving work on our behalf so that it's advantageous for us, more fundamentally, Christ's return is a part of His exaltation. It serves His glory. And really, 
Jesus Christ is glorified in both of these aspects that we've considered tonight. His sitting down at God's right hand and His return as judge. Christ is glorified in the fact that He is now sitting at God's right hand. Because you see, now He rules over all according to His human nature. You see, it's true that with regards to His deity, He's always been ruler over all. He was already the head of the church before He ever even became a man, before He ever even came into this world. But yet, His sitting down at God's right hand is a real glorification for Him because now we have the man, Jesus Christ, in that position. Think about that for a moment. There's a real man. Yes, He's God too, but a real man sitting in heaven not just as the ruler of a nation, but as the ruler of the entire universe. That's To be given that position is to be glorified. To be given that position is to be exalted above all. So that for Jesus Christ, this was indeed a step, an aspect of His exaltation, His glorification. And that's true also from a certain point of view with respect to His divine nature because that divine nature is no longer veiled. When He came into this world and clothed Himself in our humanity, His divine nature was hid from view. It was veiled. Certainly there were flashes of it. When Christ would perform a miracle, His deity would come flashing through and everyone could see it and recognize this man is in fact God in the flesh. But by and large, that deity was veiled. It was hidden from view, but not anymore. Now that He is seated at God's right hand, His deity is on full display, shining forth through His humanity. This is an aspect of His glorification, of His exaltation as our Savior. But now that's true not only with regard to His sitting down at God's right hand, but also with regards to His return as the judge of the quick and the dead. Because though Christ is indeed the ruler over all, not everyone acknowledges it. There are many who outright deny it. The fool in his folly says, there is no God. And thus the fool in his folly says, that man named Jesus of Nazareth who lived 2,000 years ago, He might have been a great teacher, but He was no God in human flesh. Unless they deny His incarnation. They deny His atoning death. They deny His resurrection, His ascension, and the fact that He is sitting down at God's right hand. And they deny that He will come again. They join the scoffers who say, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. The point is, not everyone acknowledges. Most reject this truth that Christ will come again. But when He does come, He will be glorified. Because on that day, no one will be able to deny it anymore. But instead, as we're taught in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 11, wherefore God also also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All will confess He is indeed King of kings and Lord of lords. Everyone will acknowledge, yes, He has been the sovereign ruler of the universe. And thus Christ will be glorified as He ought to be. 
And as His church, who delights in His glory, our prayer then becomes, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen. Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for the comforting truth that Jesus, our Savior, is at Thy right hand, ruling over all, and showering down upon us by His Spirit the blessings of salvation that He has earned. And we thank Thee for the comfort that we may have in light of His coming again. That because He first came to die for us, therefore we need not fear His second coming, but can look forward to that day in which we will finally be delivered from this sinful world and be brought into everlasting life with Thee, our God, in all of its fullness. And it's in light of our desire for that that we pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we pray that Thou wilt hear this prayer for His sake. Amen.